Welcome to As We Like It, a podcast about film adaptations of Shakespeare's plays. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. This month, we have our guest host back with us, John Kelly. Hi, John. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Good to have you. Our other John, I feel a little awkward when I keep switching back and forth, but is busy again. So we were very pleased to be able to ask you to come back and join us again. Yes, I'm happy to be here. And then we set you a really big task. <laughs> a big task or... A long task, you might say. A long task. <laughs> yes, yeah. a long task. Because this month, we're discussing the 1996 Hamlet, directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh. And I'm not going to go over the cast list. I'm sure we're going to want to talk about it as we go along. But there's a lot of very notable names Big in it. It's yeah. as, it is as long as the movie is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the thing that this particular version of Hamlet is most well known for is being the first unabridged theatrical film version of the play. And it runs just over four hours. And that is undoubtedly something we're going to want to talk uh, perhaps at length about. Indeed. But let's start off by first asking, had you seen this before, John? I had seen it in high school, actually. We read Hamlet during one of my years, and we watched this adaptation accompanying our reading. I remembered it being very long, but I didn't remember it feeling all that long. I'm sure it's because we watched it in stages in the classroom, but right. I had not forgotten the very bombastic ending <laughs> where uh, Hamlet <laughs> thrusts his rapier like a javelin and comes swinging down on his <laughs> chandelier to kill Claudius. Um, so. It definitely made its lasting impressions. <laughs> yeah, he kills him three ways, I guess, in that scene. Yeah, he yes, does. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make sure. <laughs> well, we had seen it when it came out. We saw it in the theater in Toronto, right? When we were in... So That's I was right. an undergrad, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember very clearly watching it in the movie. I, I had forgotten many scenes of it, but mm -hmm. I do remember watching it because I remember the intermission. Yes. <laughs> that it had an intermission. I mean, the movie stopped and we all got up and went out into the lobby. Cheering. Brave! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it, it stops on, we'll talk about this, but the scene it ends on just before the intermission is quite the scene. One and I remember just walking, scenes, yeah, I and I just remember walking out of it going, what the hell are we watching? <laughs> I don't understand this. Remind me which scene ha it ends on before the intermission. That's just as he's about to be shipped, shipped off, to, off England. to England. And he's standing oh, that's in right. front of the uh, the glaciers and everything. And <laughs> there's this big, long, very slow shot withdrawing back for, on him. And he becomes, you know, pulling wider and wider and wider one single shot. Right. And he ends up um, screaming to the Arctic wastes. <laughs> yeah. Um, arms stretched across in his first Christ figure. <laughs> yeah. One of several. Of several. Of several. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I do remember that. And then we did buy it on... VHS. Well, it was given to oh, us. It was given to us. Is yeah, that why we have it? Because yeah. I don't remember ever actually watching it on VHS. No, we had it. Gave it to us. Yeah, it's a two VHS box set. Yeah, I think one needs to have a purpose to, to sit down, sit and, down this, and engage. Yeah. And when you do, it's very rewarding. It's very engaging, but it does require effort and it does test the modern attention span. That's for sure. I know that I took multiple intermissions, shall we say, not just the. Uh, <laughs> Big redder, uh, red letter intermission that happens halfway through. Well, we, as is our usual habit, watched it before bed, which meant that it took us five nights? Four nights. Four, yeah. nights. Four nights. Four nights, because we kept falling asleep the first two. Well, we made it half an hour through at a time for the first two nights, and then we watched the rest of it in two nights. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> we did it in pieces. And that that's not a 
because it's a boring movie. It's just because if we don't start watching it till 1130 at night, we often don't get very far <laughs> into whatever we're going to watch. We hadn't, I hadn't seen it again since that first one. Nor had I. For that reason, it, it was just, it's a big undertaking. And, and it, I, I hadn't loved it enough the first time. And we'll get back to my feelings about it this time, but that I, you know, was driven to want to watch it again. Yeah, that said, it's, it's, it's very vibrant. It's very ambitious. Of course, it's a very long adaptation. It kept me engaged largely through a lot of the camera work in the set, as well as clear delivery of the text, but also emotive delivery of the text. Yeah. Which is the hallmark of Brano's productions is the is the way the text comes through so well. Mm-hmm. It's pretty extraordinary. H- Hamlet has fifteen hundred lines. The play is four thousand lines. It's Shakespeare's longest, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. It is a lot to say, and you can actually see and be impressed by Brana. His control of his breath in his big speeches, yeah, in his big speeches is is pretty in- incredible. But there are times where you are simply awash in a Hamletian soliloquy or monologue, and you kind of dip in and dip out. And Mm -hmm. it's easy to lose track of the meaning of it, but if you really dedicate yourself and pay attention, I think the delivery makes very difficult, very dense, very philosophical, very famous passages really come to life. But mm-hmm. the way that Brenna moves the camera through the, the glorious set, which I'm sure we'll talk about, in almost kind of like a West Wing fashion, you know, in West Wing, they're always moving and talking at the same right. time. Yeah. It adds a dynamism that I think prevents you from kind of checking out of, of too much language. So, the you know, Shakespeare's language and the language of the cinema, again, like we talked about with Chimes at Midnight, mm-hmm. Brenna does a good job of marrying those two. Yeah, for sure. So I thought maybe we could start by just talking about the first couple of scenes. You've got the battlement scene and then Mm. the post-wedding scene, I guess, Um, as we are introduced to our characters. And then that maybe can help us talk about the setting, as you said, and and the sets and how they're, they're set up. So, I mean, the play always starts with the scene on the battlements with the guards seeing the king's ghost. Right. I have to just start by saying, because I would be betraying myself if I didn't, that, of course... I'm just so pleased to see Brian Blessed again. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite, favorite. <laughs> I love Brian Blessed and everything he's in. <laughs> and while his uh, true greatness is not really exploited by his ghost role, it still just makes yes. me happy. Yeah, I mean, such a quiet I know, it's all whispers. It's, it's all so whispers. funny. <laughs> it's very breathy. <laughs> If he's known for anything, it's his his shouts. Voice. <laughs> his Arctic eyes are yeah. very intense too. Yeah. I was struck by Jack Lemon. I thought that was a very interesting yeah. role. I don't really have an opinion on whether it was good or not. Um It stood out kind of. Like it, it stood out against the other voices and the other readings of Shakespeare, I, to me. It stood out because it was a bit less theatrical. It also stood out because you knew it was Jack Lemon, and it was hard, at least now, 20 years after this 1996 production, mm-hmm. it's hard not to go, oh, that's Jack Lemon in a production of Hamlet, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and it's hard not to hear the American accent to right. me. Now, later on, as we got more different accents, because that's actually one of the things mm-hmm. that the play is kind of interesting for, it does have a number of, of different accents, not just British and American, but also a few European accents and even a Chinese accent. And yeah. um, So that was fine. But 
but right in the beginning, because we had only the British, very sort of Royal Shakespeare Company accents, and then one not, it, it, it kind of was a bit jarring to me. It's a bit jarring. I, I did like the way that Brenna used the estate. I believe the exterior was all Blenheim Palace, which is yep. where mm-hmm. Churchill was raised. I think I'm proud of myself for pronouncing Blenheim right. I'm impressed. <laughs> it's because of your, now that you're over the pond, you're better at that, right? <laughs> This was a great discussion. This podcast was fantastic. I, I think this is, I'm going to end on a high note here. Um, <laughs> you got the one pronunciation. <laughs> it's very extensive. It's snowy. It's cold. Mm-hmm. And I immediately felt small as a result of it, which set yeah. up, I think, probably some thematic concerns. But it was also very kind of thriller-like in a way. Not Michael Jackson thriller, but... <laughs> you know, movie thriller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it definitely set something of a popular, more accessible Hollywood tone. And it does uh, grab you right away. And mm-hmm. before you even have a chance to, it, usually when I approach a, a text or a, an adaptation of Shakespeare, there's that initial moment where you're immersing yourself into Shakespeare's language and you go, oh gosh, this is going to be really hard. This is going to be really difficult. But I think Brenna just grabbed you and, and pulled us right in, kind of enclosing us in that huge Blenheim compound there. And it helps that it's an action scene that starts it rather than a prologue or anything else like that. Yeah. Like they're short sentences and quick and then a ghost. Like it's not too off-putting in that sense. Agreed. And then that beautiful interior, which is is all a film set. It's not the mm-hmm. actual location. Mm-hmm. It's all chef um, studios. But gorgeous set. Mm-hmm. It is indeed and, gorgeous. And so brave to have all those mirrors. I can just imagine, you know, from, from the standpoint of the camera work, getting, getting the, every the shot angles without, right. <laughs> with, without your with lights. all those mirrors. Yeah, without your lights and your camera in every single shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty audacious. The interior is, it's very colorful too. I don't mm-hmm. know if when you read Shakespeare on the page, uh, if if it's very vivid in terms of what everything looks like, but the interior was very vibrant and very lush. Mm-hmm. And that wedding scene, so you mentioned the opening uh, embattlement scene, and then you have the wedding scene, and... Brenna has a huge rain shower of confetti come down and Mm -hmm. hundreds of hundreds of people on the stands. And then you've got red and greens and whites everywhere. And then Hamlet appears, of course, in a very dashing black. As he has to be since the text specifically says he is. Yeah, He's still in mourning. Yeah. But it's a very... It's a very well cut suit. He's he's oh yeah. He's a very <laughs> he's handsome. not in sackcloth and ashes or anything. Yeah, he's a very handsome Hamlet, and he's mm-hmm. it's not gloomy or melancholy. The world of Branagh's Hamlet, which is interesting because the big one before it was what Olivier's in forty eight, and that one's very gloomy and melancholy, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. I think Shakespeare is colorful mm-hmm. and rich in my mind's eye a lot of the time, but Hamlet is not. No. usually because you think of it as being in sort of a, a dark, medieval castle a dark medieval castle and you think of danish people as being dour sorry danish people and <laughs> <laughs> well you know the scandinavian drabness or something which is not at all necessarily fair but it's just it's the sort of image i have and then of course hamlet himself mm-hmm. who seems so gloomy and melancholy so it, it isn't a play that conjures vividness and i think it's a very effective contrast to have that mm-hmm. between Hamlet isn't melancholy, but he is a contrast to the color and the richness and the happiness around him, Yeah, mm-hmm. even so. Mm-hmm. And then the contrast between the interior and the exterior. Right, which is a thematic mm-hmm. contrast throughout the play and movie, the, the inward show. Mm-hmm. 
and the X word. X word show? That's not a X-word. word. I like that. <laughs> Out- Outward, word. I think, oh. is probably what people who speak English X-word. say. I like X word. You know, exterior people, always, the interior. <laughs> people like to say Shakespeare invented a lot of words, and we know that a lot of those words weren't actually invented by him, but some mm. do appear in Hamlet, and they also appear in podcasts about Hamlet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if he can coin them, I can coin them, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought the reveal on Hamlet, mm-hmm. which is done with the, the camera sort of moving from the gay showiness to behind the bleachers, yeah. To him standing grimly in the corner. It was one of the moments, and these do happen all the way through the film, where I felt that it kind of pushed me a little bit towards over the top or too melodramatic. It looked nice, but I found myself in those flourishes. I Mm -hmm. I felt several of those flourishes as well. Yeah. Asking myself, is this my Hamlet, right? Mm -hmm. I think we all have such relationships to Hamlet Mm-hmm. that any performance of Hamlet is going to be asking us to engage with our own Hamlets. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I felt that the moves were a bit histrionic. Other times I said Hamlet is histrionic himself, so that metaness uh, works. But there were occasions where I felt it was distracting. Um, mm-hmm. I think at the end, the uh, swinging chandelier was hilarious if distracting. Yeah. His delivery of words, 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 when Polonius asks him what he's reading, yeah. I didn't like that for some reason. The- no, it was almost <laughs> kind of, he chews the words, you know? Yeah. He did that a number of times. Uh, a number of his ways of expressing his madness yeah. were to be sort of pulling faces. Mm-hmm. And one can see the argument for it. It wasn't yeah. completely unmotivated, but I didn't love it either. It seemed a combination of cruel. Now, that is not necessarily unfair to Hamlet because Hamlet is cruel in places. A combination of cruel and just silly, you know, just straight silly. Yeah. yeah, the silliness. It was as if the comic relief overcompensated for a gloominess that wasn't present in the first place. Mm-hmm. You didn't need it to go that far. It didn't need to go that broad. And maybe Branagh is making an interpretive point. The characters in the play are trying to determine if Hamlet is mad Mm-hmm. And I think they want us to think Hamlet's mad uh, because they don't know how else to make sense of what Hamlet's going through. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe Brenna is overperforming there to say, hey, I think Hamlet, as Shakespeare makes him, is putting on his madness. He's play acting mm-hmm. the madness for whatever reason. So maybe that's part of uh, Brenna's populism. Uh, the overacting is a way to deliver the the meaning. Yeah, and I think that that's part of what I mean by cruel in that what it seems to me is he's also sort of saying, this is what you think madness is and I'm going to put mm-hmm. on my dumb show for you. But if you weren't so stupid, you could see through it. Right. Know, it's mockery. It's mm-hmm. mockery to mm-hmm. his face. He does that a lot to Polonius. Now, that's in the play. Like, I'm, I, yeah. I, I think right. Hamlet mocks Polonius, Polonius to his face and is yeah. cruel to him. And so it's not Branagh's, you know, John's just bringing that out. But I think that's part of what he's doing is sort of putting on a, a, a feigned madness that is so silly that if they weren't such dolts, they could see it because he despises them all, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially, right. and their intelligence. He and his hyper intelligence. Yeah. And I think that was 
definitely the Hamlet that Branagh was playing was mm-hmm. one who did who did despise the intelligence of everyone around him. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I think Hamlet as a character is somebody we love and hate. He's a pretty cold person. What he does mm-hmm. to Ophelia in many ways is unconscionable. Uh, mm-hmm. And the way he treats his own mother is questionable as well. Branagh, we sort of love him. You have to admire the sheer sweep that he uh, accomplishes uh, Hamlet. But other times, you kind of get irritated. With me, when Branagh irritates me, which I agree, like I like him very much as an actor and many other things, but he gets overly grandiose. He gets a little overly impressed with himself. That's how it plays. I don't know if that's what he thinks, but that's how it plays. And, you know, he, he kind of becomes the stereotypical actor, the everyone look at me, I am the focus of all attention, everything's about me. And the thing that's interesting about that is how well that overlaps with Hamlet. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's the student in high school who, who, who's always outside of the theater being in the theater. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. He's the theater kid. Yeah, and, and when he's playing the roles that he should play, that's brilliant. And when he's not, or when you know, at certain parts, it can be highly aggravating. You want him to just be off a little bit, thanks, mm-hmm. you know, not always on. There are a few moments where he lets his guard down and he is more genuine. And yeah. the, that contrast does work, I think. Yeah. Oh, no, and that's, I mean, that's what I was going to say is that just he irritates me at moments, but it's by no means the whole of his performance. Mm-hmm. There's lots of his performance where I don't feel that at all. And I don't feel he's too over the top or too grandiose or, you know, I wouldn't want to say that that's, the only way he plays Hamlet is just that in those moments when he's irritating me, it is a little hard to tell if he's irritating me or if Hamlet's irritating me or if they're in conspiracy together. And for some reason, those moments, and maybe that's just the nature of criticism, but those moments tend to stand out for some reason. Yeah. You remember what you want to fault. <laughs> Especially if you're taking notes so that you can discuss it. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't help. I was struck by I, how shouty it was sometimes. I, I remember the play being very much about overhearing and mm-hmm. surveillance. And I think that uh, Brenna did a brilliant job using his set mm-hmm. to play up those themes. Uh, wonderful job there. I didn't remember as many of the arguments, shall we say, being so public. For example, the play within the play. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he stops the play so many times and kind of stands up to make sure, hey, mom and uncle, are you guys seeing this? Do you get Mm -hmm. this? Is this pricking your conscience and sort of making a scene? I don't remember that as much in the text itself. I didn't reread this play before I watched this. I'm actually saving it for the very end of Shakespeare Confidential because that's what you do. Um, (laughs) So a revisitation would be worthwhile, but felt much more public than I remember the play being. Well, I think that's Mostly in the performance, because I think, you know, all the lines are there, obviously, in the play. But I agree. He, you know, I think I've seen that performed multiple times where he makes asides, where half of those comments are to himself. Right. Or to, you know, to the camera, essentially, rather than standing up. Not only is he yelling at the king and queen, but he's sort of forcing the audience to notice and the camera very much was making us see that the audience were all you know looking between him and looking at the king and looking and you know it was very stage managed and (laughs) very um very telegraphed this is the bit that you're now all going to pay attention to oh everybody look at the king being uncomfortable oh you know and Mm -hmm. and i found that a bit odd because it did what it didn't seem as natural now it perhaps is a bit odd to talk about this movie on the axis of naturalness because it's obviously not but but it didn't seem like 
you wouldn't naturally do that. <laughs> I know that's, you know. No, especially if you're trying for, to see if you're yeah, actually trying yeah. to prove his is he guilty or not, then you need to see his unforced reaction, right. not one where you're like standing there saying, hey, get it, get next it. bit. <laughs> it's like you, right? Right. It's like you. Right. I mean, that's, <laughs> I know. A, that's literally Flash begging the question. <laughs> you have you passed over the dad. question. You killed my dad. <laughs> yeah. So I did. Yeah, I, I agree. That felt um, surprising in its execution. What did you think overall? Let's just start with some of the of um, Derek Jacobi, Jacobi, Jacobi. Jacobi, yeah, I think it's Jacobi. Derek, what did you think of Derek's <laughs> performance? I'm on first name terms of Claudius because I think he's you know he's the foil to mm-hmm. Hamlet through so much of it the way it's done. Derek had done a performance of Hamlet a few years prior to Branagh's own. I, I liked his performance of Claudius. Mm-hmm. He's a very good actor. Yes. I think his his famous soliloquy where he is coming to terms with his own guilt. Mm-hmm. It's also a scene where Hamlet has an occasion to kill him, but he, he doesn't. I think it had a more nuanced emotion. It felt, speaking of the word natural, mm-hmm. perhaps yeah. a bit more natural. It felt more yeah. human. I could see him repressing his guilt. I could see him justifying why he should deny the evil that he has done. What did you guys think? I, I quite liked him. I thought it was a nicely subtle performance. Mm-hmm. You know, he do, he didn't overdo the villainy. The, the villainy or the guilt. It's there, but it's it's natural, mm-hmm. as you say. Yeah. And he's a plausible villain. Yes. To yeah, that's point the, of phrase. <laughs> I like that. Plausible villains. That there's a that's a podcast name right there. I, I didn't make it up. I just wanna I don't want to take credit <laughs> for it. Somebody's screaming at their podcast right now. <laughs> but I do feel that what he brings nicely balanced is is a smarmy charm. Yeah. yeah right? Because yeah, yeah, he yeah. has to be charming. He, yeah. Because otherwise it's just ludicrous mm-hmm. to imagine that Gertrude would have married him and be happy about it so soon and that, that there wouldn't have been more objection to it and all the rest of it. He has to be charming and he does. I think mm-hmm. you know, he pulls off charming while at the same time having a, a good falseness to mm-hmm. him. He mm-hmm. seems false even when you're not totally certain what's false. Is he really concerned about Ophelia? I mean, he, in the, some of the scenes with Ophelia, he seems genuinely, like, truly perturbed and upset for her. Mm-hmm. But then you're never quite sure, is he really upset for her or just about what it'll do for him? Exactly. Or is he inconvenienced? Yeah. So he pulls off that slight ambiguity really nicely, I thought. He, he does, indeed. The storyline is so obvious. You know, brother wants to overthrow older brother, become king, because otherwise he wouldn't have become king. We don't have to question it. We don't really need to be given some sort of internal motivation, I think, for it. Like, and of course, Hamlet had a son, so Claudius was never going to get a look in. Mm-hmm. That's the other question. One would have to sit down and do some historical stuff, and Shakespeare spends no, wastes no time on it, and quite rightly so. <laughs> but, you know, why did Hamlet not inherit? Well, presumably because he's too young. Yeah. But, of course, the way he's always portrayed in the movies is as an adult. Mm-hmm. He's 30, but at the same time, I think there's actually some discrepancies about his age in the play. But one way or another, why, you know, why didn't he inherit? Well, presumably that's why Claudius had to marry Gertrude. Mm. is to secure the throne because otherwise he would have just been the brother of the dead king and Hamlet would have inherited. But 
And what's interesting about that, though, is I don't think there's really a moment where Hamlet, Prince Hamlet, cares that he doesn't get the throne. I don't know if that's ever a driving concern. He has one speech, and I'm not going to be able to tell you where it was. He has one bit where he says, he hath stood between me and my preferment. Oh, yeah. But I agree that it's definitely not Not the primary motivation. I mean, it's very, very clearly grief for his father and revenge and then filial piety are you know hammered home again and again and again and then the Oedipal stuff about his mother maybe but but mostly revenge for the killing of his father so speaking of performances uh, how did you guys like Kate Winslet as Ophelia it's interesting because particularly with with the idea of doing that mad scene mm-hmm. is is one of these problematic you know it, it's so easy to overdo that I think she did a good job of it yeah, I I don't know that I've ever watched an Ophelia that I was completely happy with, which I'm pretty sure is Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's fault. Shakespeare's fault, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I just, I don't think it's a, I don't know what would make me happy. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how it could be done in such a way. I thought she was pretty good. She did not feel like a weeping flower the mm-hmm. whole way through, which mm-hmm. is what I'm pleased with. Mm-hmm. That is, she didn't seem just like a delicate, shaken, driven by everybody else sort of drooping person. She became a drooping character later on in her madness perhaps a bit but even there she's she was strong and frightening mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah i thought it was pretty good it, it might, the difficulty might be how shakespeare himself thought of madness his mm-hmm. his characters when they're mad often break out in a song and yes. kate winslet did and actually in a very lovely way too um yes that one scene in particular where she, where she actually sang the connected rather than just the snatches, but the connected mm-hmm. of actual musical song was yes, and the camera just waits for her to do it, and it was very beautiful. Yeah, and the singing felt good. The crying and the flailing, maybe it's just difficult to watch, and so therefore you kind of distance yourself from the character in the first place, and therefore it's mm-hmm. effective. Uh, but it would be really interesting to have a, a conversation with uh, Shakespeare about uh, the idea of madness in his day, uh, the court of. Mm-hmm. Elsinore thinks he's mad. Uh, Ophelia goes mad, and we know she goes mad because she becomes incoherent mm-hmm. in a kind of a curious way that kind of uh, parallels Hamlet's own intelligence. Hamlet is constantly alluding to just about everything under the sun, and Ophelia kind of does that too. It just doesn't have the the connective tissue, if you will. It's it, I think it's hard to see a convincing portrait of madness itself because it can come across as yeah. histrionic and then you're noticing that it's histrionic and then you feel bad because it's a person's grief and that's the way they're expressing it. And then you realize that it's just a performance. And then you go through this whole sort of strange set of emotions. And real, real madness, whatever that is, I mean, what what we don't even have a thing we would call madness anymore because we have a, a medicalized view of uh, mental conditions and things like that. There's no there's no catch-all term for madness now. What Shakespeare calls madness, we don't even have a like. Is that schizophrenia? Is it yeah. depression? Is it hallucinations? Is it like you know what is it? And so you, we we can't really just have an umbrella term for it. But also people who have true mental breakdowns, I suppose, wouldn't make good stagecraft, right? Because if they're just literally speaking nonsense or moaning in a corner, you can't have that on a stage. What you want is an Ophelia who says things that are accidentally meaningful or Mm -hmm. deeply symbolic or catch people's emotions 
or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's not going to be whatever true madness is. It's not going to be that. So you can't really do whatever genuine madness would mm -hmm. be. So you've got to do some sort of artificial madness if you're going to put a mad person on stage. Yeah. And therefore, once you, you do it's that, it's going to seem stagey and it's going to seem, yeah. It's hard to get away from staginess as such in Hamlet. Yeah. Hmm. And, and I think deliberately, because you, you, you paralleled it to Hamlet's madness, and of course that's important, he uses nonsensical phrases in order to put on madness. In, I mean, he says, okay, what do mad people do? They say disconnected things. And so he uses a whirl of words to try to distract and confuse and make people think that he's not saying anything important. Uh, so he stages madness, mm -hmm. and her madness is stagey. They, they mirror each other in that way. Uh, I do. I sorry. I just want. I found it. <laughs> Hamlet says to Rosencrantz and Gilders. <laughs> sorry, this place I've just found it gives them entirely the wrong names. Gilderstone and Rosencraft. Maybe that's a different version. Anyway, he says they says, um, "My lord, we were unwillingly, if we might know the cause and ground of your discontent." And to them, he says, "Why I want preferment." That's what I was remembering. So it is, it's, he's telling them that the reason he's unhappy is that he doesn't have the position he would want. But I don't think we need to think that that's that true because obviously he's yeah. lying to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. That's as he always, does. As he always right. does. And he's giving them the reason they would find plausible. Right. Because anyone looking at a young prince would say, oh, well, of course, he's jealous of not being king. Mm hmm. So that's a plausible reason for people who are the dolts that he despises them as. So that's, but that was what I was remembering. He would be, he would be a very difficult king to entertain. You would have to really look <laughs> yeah. to him, wax philosophical for some time. Yeah. I think he would be an awful king. I've <laughs> yes. got to say, there's nothing he does in the play mm -hmm. that suggests he would be any kind of king at mm -hmm. all. Now, in many ways, Fort Fortinbras is the king you perhaps want because he's a, a person of he's a person of action. Mm -hmm. Well, interestingly, in this one, anyway, Claudius seems like a seems very like good, a king. good king. Yeah, <laughs> he sort of did. Yeah, other than the minor matter of the murders, murder, <laughs> and then his willingness to commit other murders mm -hmm. towards the end. Though he kind of feels like that's driven on him mm. a little bit, the way that they make it. Maybe he killed King Hamlet because he's he's out there with barely a coat on, drinking tea in the snow. I'm gonna lie down in the hammock in the snow. It was really strange. I know Scandinavians, you know, again, very good with snow and all, but actually, you know what? I will just say this now. It seemed like such an English understanding of winter mm. because because they've got these howling winds and cold arctic snowscapes and then we have the scene where we're told that ophelia drowns herself exactly and i'm sitting there you get staring out at my completely frozen lake outside going no. where and with flowers and and then you know and then they dig her grave and again mm. no nah, you can't you, could, frozen, you could not dig a grave yeah. and and she couldn't possibly you know shakespeare doesn't set it in the winter I'm not, it's not that Shakespeare says it's the middle of winter and then no. she drowns herself in the spring. But, and it was like just the scene before that they emphasized with really, mm -hmm. really outside gale force cold. And I just spent, sat there thinking only an English director could think that you could <laughs> have snow on the ground. She's not really known snow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because I, I imagine sometimes, yes, it does snow in England quite hard, but it only, you know, lasts three days and the rivers never freeze. Like, I imagine that's a thing that happens elsewhere. But she's picking flowers. And the same with this idea that he'd be taking tea in the garden. It's like Kenneth was, all right, 
It has to be in the garden because that's what it says in the text. <laughs> but I really want a cold, windy, wintry Denmark kind of thing. And this is an exterior, so we need it to be winter. All right, he'll just sit in the garden and have tea. I'm sure if he wears a coat, I'm sure you can do that. That's fine. Like, it's fine when we're snowy here. It's only minus three. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I just had that going, you don't do that. <laughs> and then if you notice, when his tea is knocked over, nothing spills out. I don't know why I paid attention to that, but I, I was curious. Maybe he drank all the tea. One of the virtues of Brenna's productions are that the text, which he very faithfully follows in this production is very understandable and there are he he doesn't change a lot of the syntax he keeps you know um, some obscure words in there uh, but the actors well at least the actors who carry most of the lines do such a good job and are so familiar with the text itself that their control of breath their physicality the way they move um, the way the staging is done, even if you don't understand it word by word, because who does? Yeah, but you still know you, what's happening. Yeah, you you get the sense, and all those you know luscious gems that Shakespeare gives us from this play are delivered well. Um, so I, I think some brilliant things about the film itself were so. Of course, Hamlet delivers some of the most famous lines in all of literature, including his many soliloquies. Uh, first and foremost, being the "to be or not to be" soliloquy, which. Branagh stages in front of a mirror and behind yes. which mirror is Polonius and Claudius uh, spying on Hamlet to try to see whether or not his love for Ophelia is the source of his madness. Mm-hmm. And I think we're so used to the mirror trope now that it might seem a bit cliched, but the camera is placed behind Hamlet's shoulder. So we see Hamlet watching himself deliver it. Yes, and somehow we don't see the camera. I I will never not be amazed at that. <laughs> That's incredible camera work, and yeah. I, I think it worked brilliantly. I think, yeah. it, I think it visually summarizes a lot of the themes. And what I really like about it is the way that as he gets closer and closer to the mirror, Polonius and Claudius, and they're very visibly terrified. And I just love the idea of Hamlet's big speech about mortality, about the meaning of existence, about not knowing whether or not if we die, there's going to be a hereafter and what that's going to be like and whether we want there to be a hereafter, being trapped in this idea of consciousness, being conscious of his own consciousness. And Claudius and Polonius just look terrified. I think it's really brilliant the way that works there. Yeah. The other thing is that scene plays with solitude, and the whole movie does, in fact, I think. One yeah. of the themes that I really felt that it brought out was the, the play of a, a bit about solitude and aloneness and not being alone. So it's a soliloquy, but he's, but not, it's, alone, he's yeah. not alone. And, and it's so very clearly not alone because of that one-way mirror effect. So it's not even people hiding behind a corner. Like, to them, they're, stand, they're standing face-to-face face with him. Yeah. So they are right there with him. And when, our cam- when, when the camera is doing that, we are too. He's alone, but looking at the mirror, so he's working out aloneness. It's not clear whether he's sure he's alone or not. I mean, he does By the end of that scene. By the end of the scene, he knows they're there. They make a noise. I don't think he does then, but I wasn't sure at first whether Mm. he realized they were there or not. And, And the whole idea of the question that, as you say, the to be or not to be is sort of about who am I and how do I exist in the world and the loneliness that Hamlet feels all the way through as being the only one who's wrestling with these philosophical quandaries that nobody else it seems to him has even thought about what it is to exist and for him it consumes him 
and that loneliness and in, in that we see in the very first scene when he's introduced where every he's in the middle of a crowd and he's completely alone and isolated mm-hmm. and so that's played through the whole movie again and again is the idea of being in company or not being in company being in company with uh Guildenstern and Rosencrantz but not being in company mm-hmm. because they're really there they, they say they're his friends mm-hmm. but they're there to spy on him and so he's not really mm-hmm. with them and and all of these themes are, are all the way through and I think it's played out in a lot of different ways and I thought that scene with Ophelia down one end and we know that too mm-hmm. we know she's at the other end of the hallway so he's not even alone in the room he just hasn't seen her yet and because it's called a soliloquy like I think this is part of the meta theatricality mm-hmm. of it too we know as an audience this is his soliloquy and soliloquies are literally de- by definition alone <laughs> you know and so all right, of that right. I think is played into and 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 the quite and the thing that there are multiple mirrors mm-hmm. so you're never alone when you've got with yourself and all of that well, I mean, isn't that the way existence feels like, mm-hmm. right? We exist as social beings, mm-hmm. and yet, no matter how well you think you know someone, you don't really connect to them in the way that you connect to yourself, mm-hmm. right? We're all isolated in our own skulls, and so it's a, a recognition of that. And I think, you know, this is something that, a theme that, that Shakespeare uses quite a bit in, in not only in this play, but uh, throughout his, his, his works in general is mm-hmm. this idea of individuality and isolation. Well, and the sort of solipsistic yeah. idea, is there a world around me mm-hmm. or do I merely create it in with, with my perception? I mean, he's not thinking quite in the same terms that we might think about that now in terms of actual perception versus reality. But I, I agree. I think that's really important. And- he ends up creating a solipsism in that he's so trapped in his subjectivity and it's not necessarily a selfish subjectivity. It might be a hyper awareness of the subjectivity, mm-hmm. a very soul bearing awareness of his subjectivity that he effectively creates solipsism in that he disregards everyone else around him with exceptions being his memory of Yorick and Horatio to some extent. And Ophelia, but only in her absence. And Ophelia only in her absence because he does say he did love uh, Ophelia. So mm-hmm. it is it is a profound subjectivity. It's actually a, it, it can give you chills thinking about it. And it's amazing too how exquisite the expression of this kind of nihilism or this radical subjectivity can be as this person is realizing in such a profound way his own mortality, the meaninglessness of the big castle around him. Um, Human beings are are corrupt and diseased. Look at his mom, look at his uncle. And yet it's delivered in some of the most gorgeous words possible. I mean, the ironies are so manifold, but it it gives you a a strange joy too that, that we get to have that we get to have this moment, this to be or not to be moment. That entire speech is one that I think we all revisit so many times and times again. And as you said, Mark, we think we know other people, and yet we can never really, really know them in the way that we know ourselves. And yet even there, we might ever not ever know ourselves. And I don't think we can ever really know Hamlet either. I think that mm-hmm. Hamlet himself, as much as we want to figure out his motivation or what his tragic flaw is, he is ultimately opaque to us in his own humanity, in his own awareness of his subjectivity. And that's Shakespeare's greatness. And for all Branagh's uh, over-the-topness, I think he gets that. And it's well done. The other thing about that scene, and I agree with everything you've just said, that I think the way that the staging works particularly is... Hamlet is so isolated and unable to connect with other people. To him, it becomes more and more what he thinks is a feature of 
human life and both of you are saying that mm-hmm. i'm not sure it it is or at least not necessarily in the same way that he i mean it's it's the big question is mm-hmm. that is that a feature of human life or is it not but in the staging he is asking that question and looking at himself, himself yeah. and not seeing two other people he's speaking to and not seeing the woman who loves him who's down the other end of the hall so he is asking that question only of himself because he has or he feels unconnected to literally the people around him. Mm. Like he is actually not speaking to them, even though he is because he feels only able to interrogate himself. And he is literally so self-absorbed. And I don't mean by that selfish, but Mm self-absorbed in the question of who am I? What am I? What should I do? That he can literally not Not see see the other people who want, Mm. however problematic Polonius and Claudius's intentions they do genuinely want to understand him. Yeah. For perhaps their own selfish reasons, but they actually, I mean, they're there trying to figure him out and he isn't even able to see them or speak to them by the staging. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. Unless he does know they're there and it's a performance in exactly. which you go, dang it, Shakespeare, ah. Yeah, and there is a lot of that. One of the things that I have as a note and that I think we've alluded to a number of times and maybe this is the right time to bring it up is the play itself is so very meta theatrical, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So obviously it has a play within a play device. And then on top of that, we've got Hamlet playing a part deliberately. And then we have these very kind of meta theatrical devices or very obvious theatrical devices of I'll hide behind an heiress and listen, I'll hide behind, yeah. you know, these, these conventional mm-hmm. ideas. You know, that's always interesting in Hamlet. It's an interesting theme in Hamlet and it's something very worth thinking about. But in addition to that, I think the movie adds another level to that with the flashbacks. Yes. Yeah. Because they become plays within a play. Yeah. So what what we have is a number of flashbacks to things that are not in the text, but are implied implied by the text, or at least notably at the beginning, the sex scenes with Ophelia. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then later on, we, we see more of them. What we have there is we have what is just dialogue transformed into narration of a little play. So he's actually staging another play, putting on these flashback plays and using the filmic equivalent of a play within a play. Mm-hmm. Which is the flashback. Because that is what a flashback is. That's mm-hmm. how it structurally it works in mm-hmm. a movie. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. An unworthy part of me wondered if he stuck those in just so that he got to have sex scenes with. He did seem into it. He did seem very into it. In one, moment, a, in one moment, there's a flash forward, if you will, in the scene where Claudius is in the confessional booth. Mm-hmm. We see him think about stabbing him in the ear, although he doesn't actually do it. But we see it visualized briefly, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think it plays with the flashback is an idea of the theater of memory, and then I guess the flash forward is the theater of the imagination, I suppose. Effectively used. I think it's, uh, again, to jump around, I think it's appropriate to jump around too because mm-hmm. I, I feel like Hamlet is a series of rooms, and the movie, we kind of move through these rooms or these landscapes, and then one of those is the graveyard scene, and he does have a flashback to Yorick, the clown. Mm-hmm. They did a very good job of aligning the skeletal teeth with the actual actor who played yeah. when they faded in from the skull to the face yeah i you know why not? made me laugh um, 
it's kind of the only moment where we see Hamlet on other terms than himself because he's a kid. He's True. smiling. The clown's giving him love. Presumably his, his parents weren't very warm to him. But even then, it's his flashback. So therefore, it's still Hamlet seeing himself on his own terms. I do believe it. the film would want us to see his, his own flashback. Because there are places, though, where there's just cutscenes where like you see Fort Brass preparing for war. Um, That's different, yeah. Those I didn't feel were as effective um, for some of the... Yeah, I think they had to be in there because I don't think we're as tolerant of the deus ex machina kind of ending that this play has, which is Ford and Brad just walking on and suddenly being like, hey, I'm going to be king, and everyone would be like, hey, cool. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's basically all you get in the play. That's right. And I think that that's just a very conventional ending to a play and where the original audience might be okay with it. I think in a movie we would be... I don't think we could have been okay with it. So I think he needed to put those scenes in. I didn't think they added anything to the movie except in justifying the ending, allowing the ending. That's a really good point. I'd I'd be curious if Shakespeare's audience saw those deus ex machina endings as such. We're in such a hyper-newsed environment that we would always know when something was happening. But I would want, this is just an aside, thought experiment but back in you know the 16th late 16th century feasibly one day Fortinbras army could have just showed up mm-hmm. yeah yeah no the, the the idea that you wouldn't know of somebody and then he would become an imp- a rival to the throne or you could suddenly get news that the king had been overthrown you know the king had been visiting in France and it was dead like that that's not a that could have happened. Yeah. yeah, totally reasonable thing happened all the time. Whereas yes for us if it would seem it would seem very dramatic literally dramatic when as <laughs> Whereas for the Elizabethans, it would have been the Wheel of Fortune. Well, she she took another spin today. Huh. Yeah, went another direction. All right, fine. So, yeah. so back to the graveyard scene. I, mm-hmm. How did you guys like Billy Crystal as the uh, the main grave digger? He was good. Yeah. <laughs> I liked him. I, I thought and I thought he was not, he didn't seem at all out of place. No. You know, which is the worry you might have about somebody who's sort of in a different tradition of acting, movie acting in particular. What did you think? I thought it was good. I thought his comedy was very authentic. I thought it was very playful. I thought he was better than Robin Williams. Yeah, uh, I was just going to ask Robin Williams stuck out you. a lot more. Though yeah. I've got to say, yeah. for Robin Williams, that was pretty, he was pretty restrained. Pretty restrained. Like, yes, yeah. That's true. He kept coming up to the edge of like totally impossible mm-hmm. and never quite making it. And the character is a foolish character. Right. But yeah, it was just too Robin Williams. He couldn't He couldn't not be himself. Mm-hmm. You have to wonder if they gave him more screen time than he needed just because in the mid-90s, he would have been, he would have been pretty big at that point. He was, mm-hmm. Yeah, he was the world <laughs> on stage. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, I didn't think, it, it didn't detract from it as much as I, if, if you just told me Robin Williams was in the, in the movie, I think I would have been a little terrified <laughs> of what it was going to end up being because I couldn't have imagined it. As it was, it was, it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Osric is a butt of jokes and he is played for a foolish fop. And so it, it was all right. It works. Yeah, it works. But, it was, it, but I think Billy Crystal was definitely much better. Yeah. I, I, another little detail. I could not stop wondering whether or not Branagh's partial goatee was fake or not. <laughs> that had to be fake, right? It looked like... It was so perfectly groomed. <laughs> I also kept wondering why he was blonde. Well, it was a it was a very bad dye job too. Yeah, yeah very... I mean he was too blonde. I mean <laughs> I guess he's blonde because he's Danish, right? Danish, and Danish yeah. people are blonde, but they're not actually. No, There's it's... lots of non-blonde mm-hmm. Danes, right? And I mean yes, Gertrude and Claudius both were, but like he just didn't have to be that blonde. <laughs> 
It was very <laughs> it really stood out to me, but you know, whatever. And their eyes were very intense. They, they, they would be pros at that mannequin challenge that is making the rounds because they had <laughs> blink. There were, there were yeah. just minutes where nobody blinked. I mean, their eyes, <laughs> their eyes contained oceans. They were incredibly moist. I was so impressed. <laughs> Just, I was thinking as I was watching about the questions I've been trying to ask myself, like we've talked about a couple of the themes that I think the whole movie as a mm. whole brings out in Hamlet. And we can talk about, if we just talked about Hamlet as a play, we could talk about it forever because mm-hmm. there's Fragious, so yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things, so I think the solitude, loneliness company thing was really, really over and over again, really interesting. And the whole idea of overhearing what you were talking about, about the surveillance, about everybody, everybody's trying to overhear everybody else all the time or spying on them. And that's really interesting. I think also the playiness of it all. And I did think that that, so that scene right before the intermission, for instance, one of the things I just want to mention about it is it was it on a soundstage. It must have been because we had all these other great exteriors. Yeah, no, it was it. That was not that was not, not an exterior. No. That was not exterior at all. And it looked awful. It did look pretty artificial. Like It just yeah. it looked horrible to me. And that's what stood out to me the very first time we watched it, too. It just so seemed so like. I am standing on a stage reciting to a stage. And I think you could even hear his voice echoing. But part of me just thought it just was poorly done. It was probably the weakest. I think it's mm-hmm. one of two weak spots. I was aware of it as a stage. Mm-hmm. It reminded me, and this is bad, it reminded me actually of the Frankenstein, also by Branagh. Uh, yes. Branagh's uh, Frankenstein, which is not a good movie <laughs> but it has a scene near the end when frankenstein's monster ends up in the arctic and right. frankenstein is going to find him chasing him down yeah and they end up in this scene both of them in again howling arctic wastes screaming at each other and i don't even remember I, the movie gave me hives i didn't like it this is the soliloquy where he i was so distracted by the staginess of it mm. That I forget the content of the soliloquy, but he he's he comes to some sort of resolution. Yeah, that intermission then goes into Act Five, where Hamlet is much more he's less moody and less manic. The the painting out, it just seems so grandiose. It didn't seem becoming of Hamlet's interiority. It's the how all occasions do inform against me speech. Ah, that's that one. He's just met the captain of. Fordenbrough's captain, and they have that bit about uh, we're fighting over a patch of land not worth yes, not worth yes, a moment. Right. And then Hamlet says, how all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. And the basic point of it is these people are willing to fight over nothing and I'm not even willing to take an action. Yeah. I'm not ready to take an action over something so important. So, yeah. And so by the end of it, how stand I then that have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood, and let all sleep, while to my shame I see the imminent death of 20,000 men that for a fantasy and trick of fame go to their graves like beds. Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worth. So that's his moment of resolution. That's it. From now on, I'm not going to Hold hold back anymore. And then he gets on a ship to go to England. Next, and the next time we see him in the film, he is much more subdued he's, and that passionate energy, actually. Yes, but he's he's resolute. He's more res- When he comes back, he's ready to... He sends that note to Claudius saying, essentially, I'm back. And he sent Rosencrantz and Guildenstern off to their deaths. So he's taken that action. Right. Just before this, he killed Polonius. Just after this, he discovered Claudius's note, uh, letter and 
sent Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to their deaths and came back. So I guess in a sense he's that is true in his some action. But then he becomes only reactionary again because when he comes back, he only reacts to Laertes. Yeah, and he reacts to the situation. He never actually makes a move towards Claudius. No. Until after it's clear that Claudius has killed Gertrude. Only after Laertes reveals the plot does he actually attack Claudius. So he never really takes that resolution. And in the scene, it it seems as if it's like the first time his mother gave him attention for some reason, not to be too Oedipal about it, but... um... She's suddenly all lovey-dovey with him and here, aren't you yeah. wonderful? Yeah. She, she's cheering on the fact that he's beating up on uh, Laertes in fencing. That big scene, Branagh's big scene, it gave me the impression that uh, Branagh thought that Hamlet had this kind of energy. And in some ways he does, as you said. Mm-hmm. And when he comes back, he's quieter. And the quiet could indicate maybe a calmer mind that's more resolute and it's less thinky. Less unsure what to do, less distracted, yeah. Exactly. But also, I think the word reacting is the key term there because he he doesn't seem to, to have a bloodthirst to finally revenge his father. Revenge doesn't even really seem to be a concern. He seems more so just to kind of like that, that, that wonderful sparrow speech he gives before he fights yeah. uh, Laertes. He's talking to Horatio and Horatio says, I can delay this, this fencing match. And he says, no, the sparrow dies when it dies. We should be ready for whatever befalls us and maybe that that in a way seems like hamlet's revenge on the world i mean i i, I don't quite know uh, but but yeah, Branagh does read the text as it appears and hamlet does feel a little bit different i don't know what it is but it's there mm-hmm. he feels resigned um i think perhaps we're meant to feel that he realizes this as any sane person would that this duel is a trap yeah. what kind of trap he doesn't know but he knows it's a trap because mm. i mean it's a completely ridiculous idea that he's just suddenly returned etc etc and Polonius is dead and Laertes is distracted and Ophelia's just died and hey let's have a fencing match and bet on it I mean it doesn't make any (laughs) sense at all so he realizes it's a trap and so he goes to it not knowing exactly what's coming but basically feeling this is going to come to the point either Laertes will kill me or I will kill Claudius I don't know what's going to happen but this is it this is the crisis point And I think that's what we're meant to believe. And in that sense, he is resolute. Mm -hmm. But he still never really takes the control of the action. Yeah, Yeah. he never takes the initiative. He only is willing to come to this point because somebody else has put him in it. And now he's like, okay. And then when he does, it's so hyperbolic that he has has an Olympic winning arm and swings down on a chandelier. Um, and maybe that's what Brandon's calling attention to. I'm not, I'm not too sure. Um, I don't know what he's trying to do there because I've got to say it does not work for me. No, it's too, that ending. again, that's too over the top. It yeah. just, it just yeah. becomes comic book. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Which is too bad because the fencing scene itself, as ridiculous as it is in the play, mm-hmm. no, uh, it's, it's well, it's, it's really well good. Well and and yeah. if Brandon couldn't get any more handsomer, he'd go, wow, you know, yeah. Brandon, <laughs> my goodness. Um, and it has it has great energy, and he just mm-hmm. he just ruins it with that that flourish at the end with the, the chandelier swinging. Yeah, I just I just no, and I I mean the chandelier is bad. I think the throwing the rapier like a a okay, javelin yeah, yeah. is even worse. Like what? <laughs> yeah, that'd be a lot. Of force. I mean, it doesn't make any. It just doesn't make any sense. So yeah, I I thought that was unfortunate because I thought the rest of the scene, as you say, there was real emotional. Like the the duel was emotional and emotionally raw and. And Laertes' death, while, like, I mean, all Shakespearean deaths are over the top because they always talk while they die, which is just crazy. So 
fine. They're always going to seem a little bit weird. Yeah, I think Hamlet says I am dead and then he talks for like 40 minutes. He says it like three or four times I am dead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They have a different idea of the progressive present than we do. Okay. (laughs) But, but, you know, there's, in spite of that, Laertes' death is affecting and and emotional and and real and all of those bits. And even the bits after Claudius' death are all good except again i have to say that carrying him out on the christ pose in the christ pose with his arms behind him in his perfect like what exactly is he trying to say i don't know christ like (laughs) he does not sacrifice himself for the good of anybody yeah he dies but only after everybody else dies jesus does have moments of humanity where he has been tasked with something by his father and he isn't sure he's up to it and that's kind of the point is it has to be real right it has to be a human sacrifice or else jesus is not jesus that said there's an awful lot of other people in human literature who have wrestled with tasks their father had given them and not been up to it and i think taking that as a point of comparison to jesus is pretty hubristic (laughs) and also not really doesn't really work Mm. because the thing is it's one thing to be parallel to jesus wrestling with his soul but when you do the christ as uh, christ on a cross position Mm -hmm. hamlet doesn't sacrifice himself if anything christ on the cross is is different than jesus and when you're when you're pretending that you're you're not pretending but when you're sort of calling out to that particular symbol and there's no revenge i mean and there's no i mean the sacrifice isn't revenge per se unless unless bron is doing some deep exegesis and <laughs> yeah if, if you're reading it all as <laughs> if christ but like a parachrist you know like uh, i don't know if we've got expert and parachrist these are these yeah. are happening uh, <laughs> yeah parachrist a new reading of the bible in which all, christ <laughs> is sent as revenge <laughs> for man's sins <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I don't think that but it's, works. It's actually comparisons are there, unless it's sort of saying Hamlet is completely reactive. He's he's dying not for any purpose. He's dying just because it's kind of his time to die. Yeah, uh, maybe. But it, it it's a bit it's a bit distracting. And then the military mm-hmm. funeral too. Yeah, um, it's a little over the top. And again, like, why not anybody else? You know, is Gertrude unmourned? You know, like, poor woman, she really didn't do anything to deserve it. I mean, I know he was mad at her for sleep for marrying Claudius, but frankly, it's unclear whether the do you think the uh, Branagh thinks that Gertrude knew Claudius killed King Hamlet? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I don't think there's any hint of that. We would have seen something in if he if he meant that we would have seen something in one of those flashbacks. And that's a good yeah. point. Yeah, and I think also. Um, one of the things I thought was nice was the way that Claudius's love for Gertrude was played very genuinely. genuinely yeah. Like it really did seem like that was what and what he really cared about. Um, the moment, for instance, when she refuses to go with him to chase up Laertes. Yeah. Um, because because she's been turned against him by by Hamlet. Um, you sort of see his heartbreaking right there. Like, holy crap, what have I just lost? But then he goes on. I think there seems to be that he very much doesn't want her to know. Yeah. what he's done mm-hmm. as much as anything else like that's one of the reasons he's so worried about it I, mean, I think the play probably leaves it up in the air a little bit but i think the movie comes down on no she doesn't know her only sin is in loving claudius because i think we also do get the sense that, that at least does. that yeah. she does love a lot mm-hmm. she may lose that feeling towards the end but there is the moment the where anyway. she says the lady doth protest too much and that too though 
I think one could see as a face-saving move because Hamlet has made the, the, the play such a spectacle about it. Her performance, I forget the actress's name, I think it improved uh, as the movie went on as Gertrude became more despondent. And maybe part of that was because Jacoby and Hamlet looked pretty youthful and she seemed a bit older. Julie Christie. That would say that she was colder and more withdrawn for the first part, which is probably fitting of the of, of her character in the play at that point mm-hmm. um, what did you guys think about Laertes the actor who played Laertes he was fine uh, yeah. I didn't get a very strong reaction to him no I mean I felt I, I thought he did a good job of making me feel sorry for him mm-hmm. I mean which which he, he has a pretty rough go of it so mm-hmm. it's not hard to feel sorry for him you know one of the things I thought that I mean, a little related to that is one of the things that was interesting to me when you don't cut and I think we need to before we finish we need to talk about the effect of not being uncut there's just there's more background and more scenes and one of the things is the number of people and the number of times they warn Ophelia about Hamlet and that the extent to which they warn her uh, at the beginning he's playing with you don't trust him he's not trustworthy he's showing not himself not to be trustworthy really made me think wait a minute what has Hamlet been like that they feel so, because it, it seemed much more personal than just, you know, don't trust boys, mm. they'll kiss you and, and leave you. But more like Hamlet, really, like he has a history. Be careful with that man. Don't trust oh, him. That's really interesting. And and so I sort of thought for me in this play, in the end, I didn't like Hamlet very much. And I don't mean that I didn't like the play. I mean that in the end, I felt, like I said, I don't think he'd be a good king. I think he was horrible to Ophelia and Gertrude. And I think the physicality of the way they played it, I found those scenes really uncomfortable when he's squishing her up against the mirror. Oh, yeah. And he's manhandling Ophelia when he manhandles Gertrude. I Same. mean, he doesn't actually hit either of them, but he might as well. And he's a bully and he's and he's hurting them. And I, I, I found that really hard to gloss over. And I know he's a bully in the text, but you don't have to. And I, people often do have them manhandling them. But you don't have to. I understand why they do that with Gertrude often, because I think they're trying to play up the physicality and the potential sexuality sort of of it. Uh, I still don't necessarily like it. But with the Ophelia, you don't have to. He could be, all those words are just cr- perfectly cruel enough without laying a hand on her. Do you think this is was Brano's intention to, to make him kind of detestable? <sighs> I think he certainly intended us to feel sorry for Ophelia. Mm. Put it that way. Agreed. Brano has a habit of doing... When he wants to show intense emotion, if you've watched enough, you know, Mm. he or his characters manhandle other people. Mm. Like it's and then that whole sort of grabbing them by the scruff of the neck and pushing them on things and talking in their ear and in their face. He does that a lot. Like Mm. it's a Mm. we've watched several of his movies now and I'm really starting Mm. to notice it. Um, And I think he maybe just thinks of it as a way of showing excessive emotion and lack of control. I don't know whether it struck him that doing that to those two women, because he does it to other people as well. Right. It would go a long way in characterizing his relationships to women and bringing in more of a, a, a Freudian interpretation. Who does he, what what men does he push around? I, verbally, he does Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Obviously, he kills Polonius and in that awfully great line, I'll, I'll lug his guts in the yeah. neighbor room. Yeah. Um, but he, he seems most physical with the women, yeah. Physical with women. I'm just trying to think now. I mean, he obviously attacks Laertes at the end, but and he attacks, tries to attack him at the grave, but uh, he doesn't really actually get his hands on Laertes at the grave. And, and in the end, I mean, they're in a duel. That's 
different. <laughs> um, and then when when Laertes does pin him, he is softer. He well, he uses his words as power. He says that line about you know, "Don't touch me, Laertes. You don't know how dangerous I am." Kind of a, man, a manic, abusive quality about Hamlin. And I think you're right. I found him in the end unlikable. It, when I read the text, I love reading Hamlet's lines. When I was watching Hamlet, and this may have been intended on Brennan's part, maybe not, I wanted to jump into the screen and say, just shut up for a while, please. You are talking too much. The places where he uses words like a weapon, and he does it a lot, where he talks over and around and about people, and he just keeps talking at them, and he does it to Polonius about 12 times, and he does it to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and he does it to Claudius a bit. And when he does that, yeah, I... I just felt like just throttling him. He felt like a bully to me in various... The combination of the way he treats the women and his clear, as I say, despising of other people for not being as smart as him. Right. And his mockery of them. Like the way he is to Polonius um, in front of the players and stuff. I liked Polonius. I thought the way Polonius was played. Like sometimes Polonius is just unbearably irritating. But he wasn't. No, he wasn't. The only part I didn't like is when he is when he cornered Ophelia, telling him not to be with Hamlet. But even there, he was very touching with her. Yeah. Right. Like in the scenes Tender. where she was distracted or unhappy, he was very comforting. A lot of the time in the background, he's like hugging her and pat- patting her, and you know, I mean, yes, he was overbearing to her in that scene, but not as bad as Hamlet was. <laughs> True. And you know, he wasn't he wasn't irritating in the same way. Uh, I actually noticed that some of Laertes' lines, which are often cut, were him going on and on and on at Ophelia. Right. And I, I wrote down, he's inherited his father's loquacious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it seems to be genetic. But so because of that, when he was mocking Polonius, I thought, I kept feeling like, come on, Polonius is just trying to be like polite and like a courtier. And what's he supposed to do? Be rude to you? Hamlet so often was rude to people who could not be rude, be rude back. back. I yeah. mean, like when he was playing with Osric, what the hell is Osric supposed to do? If he says to him, take your hat off, and then says, oh, no, take your hat, put your hat back on. What is Osric? It's the freaking prince. Like, is he supposed to go, no, sir, I don't want to put my that hat back bullying. on. That is bullying, yeah. It's... You know, it is It is absolutely bullying. And he. it's that kind of guy who's like, I know I'm smarter than everybody else. And by the way, I'm in a position of power. And, huh. So you're all worms for obeying me. And I thought that really came out. I thought Horatio was charmingly played, if quietly played. Yeah. What then in Horatio does Hamlet... Respect. Respect. We know that Horatio also sees the ghost in the beginning of the play, and nobody else Mm -hmm. does outside the, I guess, the soldiers. Watchmen, yeah. The Watchmen. Although Gertrude does not see the ghost when he sees it again. Doesn't the ghost sort of intervene so that Hamlet doesn't become more violent to his mom? Look to your mother if she's overcome or something. He basically says, like, your mom's upset. Go go comfort her. Stop bothering her. Yeah, because he said at the very beginning, he said, don't do anything against your mother. I mean, and that that's our other strong clue that Gertrude is not is guilty that, yeah. of this murder. Because the ghost specifically says, mm. your mother is innocent in this. And he's 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 her. terribly he's terribly aggressive in that scene too. And and Brenna mm-hmm. Brenna did a good job of being aggressive. Perhaps mm-hmm. this. We I think we all sort of on the page idolize Hamlet in a way because of what he means, because it's literature, because the soliloquies and the monologues are extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And on the screen, Brenna has made Hamlet less likable which at least in my reckoning has brought a new dimension to hamlet for me because mm-hmm. even if he is so much more intelligent even if he does see the um 
the smallness of all things or the pointlessness of of so much of our endeavors, um, you begin to sympathize with Polonius and Claudius, these people who Hamlet despises because because they're complicit. But I, I begin, now that we've had this conversation, liking that they're just kind of performing their roles and not philosophizing all the time. It, it's sort of a refreshing break. You go, ah, oh, good. Okay, Claudius is going to have a, a little drink of sherry. Thank God it's not Hamlet. To being or not to being. So that that's that's an interesting dim- dimension that um, in in making Hamlet unlikable and not not always not unlike. always I mean, unlike. He's sympathetic as well. Like I'm I'm sympathetic to him, but I don't like him a huge amount. <laughs> if you, if that makes sense to you, like he he's in an, a difficult position. Yeah. He's not in the wrong often. Like you know, Claudius in the end is plotting to kill him. <laughs> True. Clearly, yep. Hamlet's not in the wrong there. Like, I'm not not really on Claudius's side either. But I think there's a contrast that's drawn between the pragmatic, worldly concerns of most of the court and Hamlet's attempt to be philosophical and ethical and concerned with metaphysical issues. And as you say, when you read it on the page, one's own concern for ethical mm-hmm. and metaphysical and moral issues is, is drawn to those, you know, because those are things we, those are timeless things we debate within ourselves and how does the world, how do we interact with the world, all of those things. But when you put it on a stage or when you put it in a movie, you remember, you're forced to remember, especially with such a well-staged movie, that the world goes on. And that the world does not rotate only about your own solipsistic conceptions of your own mortality, etc. No matter how valid they are. Yeah, no matter how important and true they are. The world needs to be ruled and the court needs to be governed and people need to function and there's a war potentially going on. And, you know, and all of those things that are done are not, in fact, trivial and to be dismissed. And, in fact, Hamlet's unwillingness to accept that other people should be was the result what did he want his mother to do after all you know okay two months might be too soon to marry again fine she's a widow of the king with no political you know like you could go into all the questions of what was she supposed to do literally get her to a nunnery is her life supposed to end because her husband has died his obsession with his father's death is noble and understandable but denmark needs to be ruled by somebody who's willing to do something else it's not to say Claudius should have killed the man. <laughs> but, you know, like there, other people have taken, have made choices too. Mm. And I think when you see Hamlet interacting with them, you're forced to confront the fact that his own valuation of his actions is not the only one and that these other th- issues are important too. And I think this is one of the reasons why, for me, the play did resonate with me so much when I was mm-hmm. young, when mm-hmm. I was a teenager and in my early 20s. Because at that age, you don't see the world that the world has to move on, mm-hmm. you know, around yeah. you. That that you're so inwardly focused on your own importance and mm-hmm. the importance of your own life. And that question of identity and how do I interact with the world and what choices do I make and yeah. who am I and how are my ethical d- decisions guided? All of those things are. That's what you should be doing when you're in your teens and in your twenties. Is mm-hmm. you should be you should be wrestling with those mm-hmm. questions. Um, I didn't very much, which is. failing in me and it's always been I'm a very non-inward looking person which is why Hamlet though I like the beauty of it is not one of my favorite Mm, plays don't get me wrong (laughs) there's wonderful stuff in it it's just not one of the ones I've most connected Mm. with because I find interior philosophizing deadly dull yeah it's like telling somebody your dreams. Who cares about my dreams? You know. But I don't even care about my own dreams in that. <laughs> in, you know, in, in that parallel, like I don't care about my own. I'm 
which makes me wonder how masculine the interiority is. I don't know if I've, yeah. I've really only had conversations with other like-minded, mark-minded people <laughs> about Hamlet when you're in your early 20s and you're rah-rahing your metaphysics and you've discovered entropy for the first time and you're making these big connections. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing that Shakespeare could tap into that because he wrote it when he was old in that age. But I don't think I've really had a conversation with anyone about a feminine interiority and whether or not yeah. that same sort of interior life that Hamlet undergoes. I wouldn't want to speak for, well, I wouldn't want to speak for my whole gender, obviously. But also, um, I know many women friends who are very inward looking and very, so I don't, I don't know. I think you're right that there has been historically a connection of young men to Hamlet. Like there is a very strong view there. And I think that probably is culturally because one of the things that you're trying to figure out culturally as a male up till now and probably for a while yet is how do I balance my interiority with my the expectation that I will act as a pragmatic person, mm-hmm. right? So males have always been expected to act as political entities and as business entities or whatever, you know, in this exterior way. Whereas that same, it's not that women aren't, but there, you know, there isn't historically hasn't been as much of a conflict between. You never have to decide what that public face is. Maybe for women in in the past, anyway, there's been less of that sort of obvious, like, I have to decide what kind of political animal I am. I have to dis- decide what kind of face to put on my masculinity for the world. Well, if anything, there's probably a double conflict in that a woman's going to be criticized for being too exterior and a woman's going to be criticized for being too interior. So the, the conflict might, the exterior might not conflict with the interior because men are making conflict with both of them. Yeah. So I think maybe the questions have been different. I think it would be interesting to know if that's changing because in general, all of us are changing our relationship with this question of how do you, you know, internal debate and self-improvement and all these things are much more of an issue for many more people. I tend to feel that I'm very much alone among both my male and female friends in being someone who's just, I'm actually perfectly happy to talk about other people's inward discussions. (laughs) I just don't want to do it about myself. I'll write about it, but I never want to talk about it. I'll ask other people questions as, as... But you want to think about it, but you don't want to talk about it. Yeah. I would be interested to know that. And I wouldn't want to, I think you're right that there has been historically a very maleness to it. And I, it may, may well still be true, but I, there may well be many young women who also identify with it now. I just don't know. I'm just not one of them. Interesting. <laughs> um, okay. I think we've talked for a long time. Now it's a long play, so that's fair, but I do, <laughs> I do think we need to we'd probably wrap up, but I want to say then uh, to ask, so what do you think about doing it uncut? Like what, what do you gain and what do you lose? Um, you know, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I saw a, a, a stage production, an uncut stage production oh, yeah. of it. Wow. And it, and they did it, I think without intermission, they did it fast. Right. And even still it was quite long. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, this is the, the Shenandoah Shakespeare Express right. and their whole thing is doing it without props, without, you know, just get costumes, through the text just as get the, quick and, as you and can. hammer the lines, hammer the meaning of the text. Mm. And it was a really great production mm. that made you focus on the mm-hmm. the incredible depth of the text. But this is not exactly this that. This is not because that. it does no. have the amazing visuals and and mm-hmm. and that. And I agree with what you said at the beginning, John. I, I think it's it's very engaging. So 
while it's long, I don't think it's slow. It's not slow. In some ways, there are traditional thriller-like moves in the way that he moves the plot along. Um, I think you ask a great question. I don't quite have an answer. I think that when you cut it, you do two things. One, you make it more accessible to the modern audience because it's hard to sit through. And two, you make an interpretation so mm-hmm. you get to add to the community of interpretation of Hamlet mm-hmm. because you have to make choices about what you want the play to be about. Uncut, yeah. it's admirable because it's ambitious. You get to see Hamlet develop more. Mm-hmm. I don't really know exactly how I would characterize that development and that maybe it's supposed to be an unknown, uh, but you really don't get away from the question of so who is Hamlet really? Um, so you don't interpret, but in not interpreting, you kind of make an interpretation because you still have to perform Hamlet. So you still get back to the same fundamental questions of so who Hamlet was really. The uncut, the cut version probably comes comes to some more of a conclusion about what Hamlet is. Right, because you cut out bits of him. Exactly. Just by cutting some yeah. of it, you cut some of the bits. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think it's an important thing to do. I think it's... Mm-hmm. To have a version that is a good and well done version that yeah. gives us the whole thing yeah. is a boon Important. to the yeah. world. But I would I love to have. I mean, it'd be amazing to talk to an informed theater goer in the late, you know, the end of the Elizabethan era there, and to see how they would have experienced a Hamlet performed and what that would have been like. Because it was never performed like this. Right. I mean, that's one thing to say about this. We say uncut, but what it is, in fact, is it's a compilation of all of the first folio plus stuff from the second quarto, I think, and then a few emendations. There is no extant version of Shakespeare that has all of these lines in it. So, uh, you know, it's it's not authentic in that sense. Not that he claims it is, but... It's completist, yeah. It's completist, yeah, Yeah. that's the word. I just suddenly had a thought while you were saying that, wouldn't it be amazing to ask Brana to go in and do four different director's cuts of this movie? <laughs> or whatever, you know? Go in and just say, like, take, you filmed it all. You filmed every single line of it. Now, now cut it. What would you take out? And, yeah. and do, like, do it three times. That'd be, Show that'd me be three different Hamlets. Yeah. When, in or, that you know, same film. Brana yeah. or somebody else or whatever. Just yeah. in that same film, same same performances. Well, I do think there was a two-hour version the he scenes and see if Didn't he release a yeah, two-hour version, um, but it was pretty limited in its run and he's and I think I'm not so, sure, yeah. I think he said it actually doesn't work as well as the longer one, the longer one. And it might not work. I mean, it may not be possible just was, logistically to, yeah. to, to cut it in a way that makes it make sense. He filmed but, it to be a complete. Yeah, and I cannot, but I, it would just be interesting to see if you could, if you could cut it to give us different Hamlets, because I think, I suspect you probably could. One of the things I felt was there is so much plot in this movie. Like it goes on, mm. there's little vignette after little vignette after little vignette. And maybe partly because we watched over several nights, but it felt like it was a mini series. Like it felt like it just, and now we'll have today's episodes. It felt like almost an epic in it, not just because it was long, but because it had a, mm. a whole series of things, which, and what was interesting is that it had so much plot, but it never moved the action forward because mm. nothing happens. Yeah. And that's right? His, and that's the point that's that he's Nothing stuck. really happens. Yeah. Nothing really happens. I mean, everything that, I mean, yes, Polonius dies and Ophelia goes mad. Those two things actually happen. And then, then we have the final conclusion. But they're the only things that happen. You know, if the plot of the play is Hamlet is told by the ghost to get revenge for ha- his father's death, mm-hmm. nothing towards that happens until the last two minutes, 10 minutes of the movie. And it's a bloodbath. Yeah. <laughs> and then everything happens. But like, 
nothing. He takes no steps towards it. He does nothing other than the play to confirm what he already knew. You know, he just never does anything. I thought there were a couple of nice scenes that are in because it's not cut. I mean, obviously there are lots, but things that I don't think they people ever show. Include, yeah. Um, like, for instance, after, when the players, when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern talk about the players coming, there's this whole long scene where they say, oh, why have the players left town or something like that? And they say, oh, well, because... Uh, now there's other p- entertainments. They've got these troops of children and they're just, and, and they don't even know what they're doing. And it was just a long rant. And it, it, it was so obviously like Shakespeare, Shakespeare like, oh my God, these totally unschooled people. Yeah, making, people. making fun of Ben Johnson or yeah, of, or, of, or of even things that are not actually even plays, like just other silly entertainments. I don't think I've ever seen that put in, in any other version. And I totally understand why, because it does nothing to advance anything. No other than being kind of fun to see Hamlet seemingly just cheerful for a moment. But it was quite funny. It was a nice little bit. I think maybe the big gain for me is because you see him in so many different situations and you'd see so many of the sort of repeated overhearings and surveillances and all of that, is the theme of how many layers there are, not only to his character, but to the plot, to people in general, mm-hmm. the many plays within a plays, the uses of the flashbacks, all of that, the many surfaces, like that room with all the mirrors is all about surfaces right. and hidden depths because they all have doors behind them. Check um, floor. All the doors. Yeah. yeah. And then there was so many, there were several hidden doors, secret mm-hmm. doors, compartments in rooms. They kept going out of rooms in ways that didn't look like they were doors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, behind bookshelves. <laughs> and behind and bookshelves things. and things. Yeah. And then Hamlet play acting and then not play acting. And is he play acting? And is Ophelia play acting? I mean, don't forget, that with those flashback scenes where we're told that Ophelia and Hamlet had had sex, now we're told that she's play acting to her father. You know, she's lying too because she's Mm -hmm. not telling him how far things have gone and all of that. So all these many layers. So I thought that the, the more scenes you have, the more those themes are explored and enriched. And an actualized, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think that is a gain. Now, I think it's balanced off by some of the scenes just aren't necessary. Or are repetitive. Hmm. Like there are scenes that tell us something about Hamlet that another scene tells us about Hamlet that we don't necessarily need. So I'm, I agree that I don't think it's, I don't think every version of Hamlet should be uncut yeah. at all. But I am, I enjoyed watching it. As a viewer, I think that episodic structure definitely mirrors some of the themes we've been talking about as well in terms of thematically of, of kind of being stuck. Um, stuck in your unconsciousness and your subjectivity, mm-hmm. sort of kind of being stuck in, in the same spot, same room, and kind of going in and out. And there are secret passages, and maybe there are illuminations at the end of them, but you kind of end up back in the same place. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, you've got Fortinbras' army literally charging the place. So if, if this... Yeah, this, <laughs> breaking yeah. all the windows. Yeah, breaking, those, all, breaking all the windows. Breaking through windows. all those mirrors. Yeah. When they yeah. jump into the room at the end, they broke all the mirrors that reflect. When We're not going to be self-reflective anymore we're now we're actions going to act because the play is very much about actions versus words as mm-hmm. well and there's a gendering of that whoring around with words like women do and and things like that and so we, at the end we have manly man jump in with his manly men no more self-reflection on with the action but we will give hamlet a massive military funeral and hamlet says for everything i've said tell my story horatio tell my story yeah. um there's not much of a story to say well metatheatrical to the end i would say yeah <laughs> All right, speaking of ends, we need to end. (laughs) Hamlet will never end. (laughs) 
<laughs> we will just talk. And it talk literally about. will never end. Words. What did we words. 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 Or, as, or as Brana did, words. <laughs> or whatever that was. Yeah. That was my least favorite part of the movie. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, John, for indulging us in Indeed. this uh, interesting and fun discussion. Thank you. Can you remind us and listeners where to find you on the web? That would be fine. I write about word origins at mashedradish.com. I write about Shakespeare at shakespeareconfidential.com. You can find me on Twitter at mashedradish. I think those would be three good places to start. I write other places, but... Start there. Great. Okay, so I think we're not sure what we're going to be doing for next month's film, but if anyone who's listening would like to know, you can either ask us on Twitter or just follow us on Twitter, and we will tell you ahead of time what we're going to be watching. Uh, We have not been doing that in any kind of organized manner, but I've decided we're going to start doing that because uh, if you do want to watch what we're going to be talking about before we talk about it, then you can do so since we don't always know at the end of one recording, what we're going to be watching for the next one and can't give you a heads up. So I don't know what it'll be, but we'll keep you stay tuned. We'll keep you posted. And until then, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at Alliterative. I'm at Avensarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X.